Now this morning, as we continue through the scriptures, we are going to start beginning to look at the book of Acts. Now the book of Acts is the beginning of modern day Christianity. It's the beginning of what we know now as the modern day church. And it is, the, it is what is, the church is built in the book of Acts. Now, whenever you build something, the most important part of your building is the foundation. If your foundation is not strong and secure and built properly, no matter what you build on top of it, no matter how beautiful it is or how elaborate it is, it's not going to last. I remember we were up in Chicago hearing stories about how when they built the, uh, it was the Sears Tower. Uh, I can't remember what it is now, the Magellan Tower. So I don't know what it is, but it's the Sears Tower. Uh, when they built the Sears Tower, they had to drive down uh, these, these huge steel pylons hundreds of feet into the bedrock to get the foundation secure enough to build the Sears Tower so that when the winds came from Chicago that it would not topple over and it would be secure and steady. Whenever you build anything, you have to have a secure foundation. If you build a house, you have to have a secure foundation. If you build a, a business... Your business has to be built on a strong foundation or your business is not going to last. A movement with a poor foundation will not accomplish anything. And that is especially clear in the beginning of the church. In Matthew 16, we saw this several weeks ago, Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to build his church on the rock of the truth of the gospel. We saw that where he looks at Peter and says, Thou art Peter, but upon this rock. And he wasn't talking about Peter being the rock he was going to be built on. But the truth of the gospel, the truth that God became man and dwelt among creation. He lived a perfect, sinless life, completely fulfilled the law, died a death that we should have died, shed his blood for our sins, was buried and rose again three days later. On that truth, that's the foundation that Jesus said he was going to build his church. And Jesus laid the foundation for the church while he was on earth. And the book of Acts shows how the church was built on that foundation and how the church, the gospel, spread throughout the entire world because of what the believers in the book of Acts did after Jesus ascended to heaven. Now, the church as we know it today, it began in Jerusalem, and in 30 years, it had spread throughout the entire known world. Now, the church as we know it today is nothing like the church in the book of Acts. Now, they, they did not come in on Sunday morning and you know sing a few songs and hear a sermon for an hour and then go home for the rest of the week. This, the way we know church is nothing like the church in the book of Acts. If we want to do church in the book of Acts, then every day of the week, I'm going to your houses and we're going to preach the gospel in your house every single day. And uh, so who's up for that? Who wants to be there tomorrow? All right, put your hand down, Kelly. You're crazy anyway. <laughs> so when I say the church as we know it began in the book of Acts, the church in the book of Acts looks drastically different than what we know as the church today. But the church of Jesus, the church of God, the church that Jesus calls the church is started in the book of Acts. In the, the book of Acts, it shows how the, the Christian faith began as just a few followers of Jesus. It began as 120 people in an upper room and spread to over 2 billion believers in the world today. These followers of Jesus, they did more than just continue the work that Jesus started, they built on his foundation and built even greater works. Because look, again, foundations are vitally important. But foundations aren't pretty. You know, when you build a house, you better have a great foundation. The concrete better be secure. The steel in there better be strong. It better have no cracks and no weak spots. It better be, it better be on a 
great foundation and then you build a great beautiful house and when you finish your great beautiful house and have people come by to see your house no one says man that's a beautiful foundation they don't care about the foundation they care about what's on top of it but the foundation is important and that's what Jesus was telling him even in in Matthew in John chapter 14 Jesus said truly truly I say unto you he who believes in me will do the works that I do also and he will do greater works than these because I'm going to my father even Jesus says look while I'm on earth, I'm laying the foundation for what you're going to do. But what you are going to do is going to be far greater than anything I accomplished while I was on earth. And that's hard for us to understand because Jesus did some pretty great things while he was on earth. Jesus healed blind to dies. He gave deaf people their hearing back. People who were lame and crippled, he healed them in such a way that they could walk and, and live their life normally. He raised the people from the dead. He walked on water. He fed over 5,000 people with just a, a few pieces of bread and a few couple pieces of fish. And he's, he's telling us that you're going to do greater works than I ever did than when I was on earth. And we, we can't understand that because he did the greatest work ever of dying on the cross for our sins and rising again to redeem us to God the Father. But his work, humanly speaking, earthly speaking, was limited. He did a great, great things, did incredible things. But in his three and a half year ministry, he didn't go outside of an area bigger than Rhode Island. His geographical area that he ministered in was very small. People that knew him was a very small amount of people. He only reached a couple thousand people. Now, he preached to thousands and thousands, but he only really reached a few thousand people with the truth of the gospel. The apostles, the first church, they took the gospel to the entire world. They saw hundreds of thousands of people come to accept Christ as their Savior. They got the gospel to every known corner of the world. That's what Jesus meant when he said, you're going to do greater works than me. Because we're able to go places Jesus never went. We're able to talk to people Jesus never would have had the opportunity to talk to. You know, while on earth Jesus reached some people, he had some area, but he never got the gospel to, to Egypt and Africa, but his disciples did. His followers did. He never got the gospel to Asia, but his followers did. He never got the gospel to America, and they didn't do it in the Bible either, but after the Bible was written, eventually his followers got the gospel to the American continent. And so he said that he could do, they would do greater works than them. So this group of people that we're going to look at. Now, remember, in the book, in the book of John, they are a bunch of scared, doubting faithless people. But they went from that to a group of men and women who had bold, dynamic faith that were courageous, that were outgoing, that were willing to, and all of them did, give their life for the gospel. What changed to take a group of scared, cowardly doubters to the most powerful group of believers the world has ever seen. What happened to them? It all begins on what they believed. Here's the first thing they believed. They believed in the risen Savior. Look at Acts chapter 1, <coughs> starting in verse number 1. The former treaties I have made of thee, O Thelopolis. So who is this guy? No one really knows. There's a, I've read a lot of commentaries this week about who this guy is, and there's a lot of different opinions. So who is he? Don't know. Luke wrote the book, I believe the book of Acts, but I don't know who he's writing to. But anyway, he's saying, look, because again, he's finishing up what he wrote in Luke. And he says, the former things I've written to you of that which Jesus began to both do and teach unto the day in which he was taken up after that through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke begins this ministry by saying, look, I'm just going to continue telling you what I told you in Luke. And, you know, I told you how he began his ministry and I told you how he died and rose again. I'm going to finish that story and tell you what happened after that. Verse three. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but 
wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world and of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up in a cloud, received him out of their and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you here gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye shall, uh, shall so come in like manner as you see him go in to heaven. So, you know, after this is, of course, Luke beginning and the story of the Acts beginning, it's after the resurrection of Jesus. After Jesus rose from the dead, we saw that last week, he spent 40 days on earth with his followers. Now, Again, in the, we're going to get to this, but after this, these verses, the, the apostles and the followers, they go back to Jerusalem, they go to the upper room and they pray, and there's 120 of them. But we know through Scripture that over 500 people witnessed the risen Savior, and Jesus proved to them that he was alive. And so there's a lot of things that Jesus had to teach them, because remember, 40 days before this, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Jesus had told it to him. He had told him, I'm going to die and three days later rise again. He told him, you destroy this temple and three days again I'll build it up. He told him, like Jonah was in the belly of the, of the fish for three days and three nights, so will I be in the, the belly of the earth. And so he told him time and time and time again, he was clear, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again three days later. But when he rose again three days later, no one believed it. We saw this last week. The women went to the, t went to the tomb and they didn't go to witness the resurrection. They went to anoint his body. They were mourning the death of Jesus. So they thought he was the Messiah. They thought he was the one that God prophesied about. But when he died, they thought that was it. Even when the women come and, and tell the, the apostles, hey, Jesus has risen from the dead. We went to his grave. It was empty. An angel told us that he rose from the dead, just like he said he was. We saw last week that the apostles said, That's, that doesn't make sense. It's nonsense. It's not possible. Then they go to the, the tomb. They see it empty, and they still walk away thinking, I, I don't know what's going on here. I'm just not sure. Jesus is walking, he's of course hiding himself, but he's walking with some of his followers on the road, leading away from Jerusalem, and they're upset. He's like, why are you so upset? And they're like, oh man, well, there was this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, and we thought he was the, the Messiah because he came, and he, he did all these miracles, and he rose people from the dead, and man, he walked on water, and he did so much stuff, and we thought he was the one, but then they, they, they killed him, and it's been three days, and he's still dead. His tomb's empty, but he, he's still dead. So these men that are standing on this hill, watching Jesus ascend into heaven, 40 days before, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And I know for us today, that's hard for us to comprehend. Because as believers, we all believe in the resurrection. Am I right? Amen? If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, say amen. 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 We all believe that. But these guys didn't. So what changed? They went from believing that Jesus had died and that was it to believing in the risen Savior. And Jesus, he stayed with them 40 days because he had to teach them a few things. First, he had to teach them the reality of the resurrection. Again, they all had doubts. None of them believed. Even, even Thomas, we all know this, you know, doubting Thomas. Thomas, he, he didn't see the risen Savior at first when Jesus first appeared to the other apostles. Thomas wasn't there. So he, he's heard the stories. He heard what the women said. He heard what Peter and them said. He heard all the rumors that, yeah, he's alive. We've seen him. He comes to a, a prayer meeting or a Bible study or whatever. He comes together with the rest of the apostles like, man, Thomas, isn't it great that Jesus is alive? He hadn't seen him yet. He goes, I don't believe it until I touch his hands. Till I physically hold, you know, can, can handle him, I'm not going to believe he's alive. So Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, 
feel me, touch me. So he had to teach them that the, the reality of the resurrection. Now, there is no doubt in their minds that Jesus has risen from the dead. They have, he's touched them. He's eaten meals with them. He's spent time with them. Luke even says that he gave them many infallible truths to prove that he had risen from the dead. Belief in the risen Savior is essential to the Christian faith. And here's why. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're doomed. We have no hope. If he didn't rise from the dead... We are condemned to hell still. He had to rise to redeem us to God the Father. Without a risen Savior, we have no hope of salvation. Without a risen Savior, we have no Holy Spirit. Without a risen Savior, we have no power from God to do the work of God to reach the world with the gospel. So he had to teach them that the, the Savior really did rise from the dead. He also had to teach them about his coming kingdom. Look at verse number three again. <clears throat> to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible truths, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, remember, you remember why they doubted he, he was risen from the dead in the first place? Because when he came and they believed him to be the Messiah, they thought he, he's going to come, he's going to set up his earthly kingdom, he's going to overthrow the Roman government, he's going to cast off our oppressors, he's going to put us in charge. That's why the whole time that he's on earth with his father, there, were, there are many times where they're, they're kind of fighting with each other about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. Like, oh, well, I'm definitely going to be closest to Jesus when he sets up his kingdom here. I'm definitely going to be in charge of this army or that, that division. And so they were, they were expecting Jesus to set up his kingdom now. But he didn't. He died. But then he rose again. So now they're thinking, well, maybe now. Now he's going to set up his kingdom. So he had to teach them the reality about his coming kingdom. He reminds them, first of all, he goes, look, you're not getting the kingdom yet because first you have to receive the promise of the Spirit of God. See, God reigns over the hearts and the lives of people who put their trust in Him. See, throughout the Gospels, the apostles had a, a strong opinion a strong view of the kingdom of God and their place in it. They wanted Jesus to defeat their enemies, to set up his kingdom, but they didn't realize that before Jesus could set up his kingdom on earth, there had to be a spiritual change inside of them that allowed God to set up his kingdom in their heart. They needed spiritual change. If you look throughout, even, even in the book of Acts, they ask again, Jesus, when are you setting up your kingdom? He never rebukes them for asking when are you going to set up your kingdom? He just says, don't worry about the coming kingdom. Worry about what's going on on earth right now. Don't worry about what's going to happen in the future. Worry about what God is doing in the world today. He, he wanted them to focus on the work that needed to be done now instead of worrying about the kingdom to come. He had to teach him about the coming kingdom. Third thing he had to teach him, he had to teach him about the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, we see that in verse, sort of verse number four. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, and not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, Wilt thou also at this time restore the, again the kingdom to Israel? And he said, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in uh, all of Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus, he reminded them, because look, when, when John baptized you, he baptized you with water. But I am going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist and Jesus throughout their ministry taught about the Holy Spirit. Now, 
the prophecy of Jesus coming and dying for mankind and rising again, that prophecy had been fulfilled. And now they are just waiting for God to fulfill his promise of giving them the Holy Spirit so that they can accomplish God's will on earth. See, verse 8 shows us that the power of the church doesn't come from a pastor. It doesn't come from church members. The power of a church comes from the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, God would fill his people with this Holy Spirit for a brief time so they could accomplish something. He would fill them with the Holy Spirit. They would accomplish something, maybe prophesy, maybe do some great feat. And then when they were done, the Spirit left them. I mean, think of Samson. You know, Samson, again, he's one of these heroes that we kind of, we kind of, you know, pretty up his story. And, you know, he's this great, big, strong guy who does a great thing. Samson's story is tragic. He ends his life blind as a slave because he couldn't control his sexual temptations. He couldn't really, he never really walked with God. Samson had some problems. But the Bible says the Spirit of God came upon Samson more than anybody else in the Old Testament. God would fill him with the Spirit and give him power to do things like kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, give him power that he could carry the gates of a city away on his back, give him incredible strength. So at the end of his life, he gave him power where he could pull down the temple he was on and kill himself, but also thousands of Philistines in, in one last rebellion against him and one last act for God. But the spirit came and the spirit left. The spirit came to David and empowered him to conquer Goliath, but then the, the spirit left him. Now, God's people would be filled with the Spirit of God and it would never leave them. They would receive the Spirit at salvation. Now we do. They would receive it at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But God's people would now be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and it would never leave them again. And, you know, I, I talk to people and I've even thought it before. You read these stories in the Old Testament, you're like, man... What would it be like to be filled with God's spirit where you could do these great things? Or what would it be like to, to, you know, spend 40 days like Moses on the mountain of God, talking to God's face? How incredible would that be? And then I'm reminded that the Old Testament prophets are thinking, looking at us thinking, man, what would it be like to have the presence of God in you all the time? That you don't got to wait to go to a mountain and hope God talks to you for 40 days and doesn't kill you because he's so glorious. But you can talk to God whenever because God's in you all the time. Now, you don't have to wait for God's power to endue you to do some great feat. You've got the power of God in you all the time. And so God is telling them that they're going to receive God's power for and do incredible things for God. Ordinary people were able to do incredible things because of the Spirit of God at work in their life. Warren Worsby says this about the Holy, the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not a luxury. It is an absolute necessity. And we see that in one of the key words in the book of Acts. We see it in the word in verse number eight. You will be witnesses unto me. That's the key word in the book of Acts. Witness. It occurs 29 times throughout the entire book. Now, a witness is someone who tells others what they have seen and experienced and heard. If you've ever been a witness in court, then you are to stand up before the court, raise your hand and say, I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Oh, may God, you are telling the court what you see, what you saw, what you experienced, what you heard. You're not to lie. That's perjury. You go to prison for that. You're just telling people, this is what I saw. This is what I experienced. This is what I heard. The purpose of the church and the Holy Spirit empowerment is to empower us to be witnesses to the lost world, to share the gospel with those who haven't heard. Every child of God, if you are saved this morning, you are called to be a witness for God. You are called to tell the lost world what you have experienced when you encounter Jesus Christ as your Savior. And again, verse number eight shows us how we're to witness. You are to be a witness to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria 
and the uttermost parts of the earth. He doesn't say, start in Jerusalem, once you got that, then go to Samaria, then go to Judea. No, he goes, you are to witness to me everywhere at the same time. No matter where we live as Christians, we are witnesses to the world, but our witness begins at home. It begins in our Jerusalem. It begins at home and extends to the uttermost parts of the world. Oswald Smith says this, the light that shines farthest will shine the brightest at home. Yes, we're to be witnesses to the world. Yeah, we should be passing out tracts and talking to our neighbors and talking to our co-workers and going on mission trips and supporting missions to get the gospel everywhere. But we're also to be witnesses to our family and our home to show them what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, to be empowered with the Holy Spirit. Another thing he had to teach, he had to teach them of his coming again. Look at verse number nine. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up in a cloud, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. See, the, the ascension of Jesus was a vital part of his ministry. A lot of people, didn't, the disciples didn't understand this. I mean, again, they're like, we, we, we spent three and a half years with him. We saw him do these great things. We saw him die a horrible death and we were heartbroken. But three days later, he came back and it was incredible and amazing. And we've had him with us for these 40 days. And now, now he's leaving again. Why is he leaving again? <clears throat> but the ascension was vital to his ministry. If Jesus hadn't gone back to the Father... He couldn't have sent the Holy Spirit. And I, am, I, I cannot imagine how incredible it would have been to be on the earth when Jesus was on the earth, to, to walk with him, to sit under his teaching, to eat, you know, that bread and fish that he multiplied, to experience these things. That had to have been incredible. But only the people in that area got to experience Jesus. Only the people in the area he was in got to experience his presence and his power and his glory. When he ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, now the entire world gets to experience the presence and the glory of God through the Holy Spirit empowerment that he gives us that salvation. His, his presence is available to everyone who accepts him as their savior. Not just those who, oh, well, you know, I'd love to be with Jesus, but I got to go to Jerusalem to do it. I'm stuck here and he's in Jerusalem, so I'm glad he's on earth, but I can't enjoy his presence. Now, as a child of God, no matter where I am in the world, I get to enjoy his presence. And that only comes because he had to go to send the Holy Spirit. If he hadn't returned to the Father, he wouldn't be interceding on our behalf as our high priest before God. He wouldn't be able to give us the grace and the mercy that we need because he's talking to God on our behalf. If he hadn't returned, he wouldn't be acting as our advocate with God, forgiving us of our confessed sin when we come to him. It says when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us because he's our advocate, because he is with the Father. He had to leave to do that. But two angels... These men, and I understand why they're doing it. They see Jesus going to heaven and he says, he had told them before, I'm going to go and prepare a place, but they don't come back. And the last time he left, he came back three days later. So when he goes this time, they're just waiting. like, well, he said he'd be right back. We'll just, we'll just wait for him to get here. And two angels had to show up and say, why, why are you guys waiting around? He said, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit and then get busy doing the work. John 14, 3, Jesus has told him, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, there is a lot of debate in Christian circles about exactly when Jesus is coming back. Not over the date. If you ever hear someone talking about Jesus is coming back on this day, they're wrong. 
They're a false prophet. You know how I know that? Because the Bible says Jesus don't even know the day. If Jesus, who is the word of God, doesn't know the date, how can some guy reading the word of God and saying, oh, well, there's all these numbers that add up to this date. How can they know? Because Jesus is the word of God. He is the living word of God. If he doesn't know it, we're not going to know it. So if someone says Jesus is coming back on August 31st, 2021, because it's already 2021, he's coming back on August 31st, 2021 at 12 p.m. They're a liar and a false prophet and don't believe them, all right? That's, so not about the date, but about kind of about the, the sequence of events. Is he coming back to receive his bride, which we call the rapture? Is he coming back to you know, rapture the church out before the tribulation? In the middle of the tribulation? After the tribulation? I've even heard recently some people talking about that there is no rapture. There is no, you know, no, you know just one day it's going to get so bad, Jesus is going to destroy everything with us here and then begin again. I don't believe that. But there's a lot of, he, are we pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Personally, I believe the Bible teaches, especially in the book of Revelation, that Jesus will rapture out the church before the tribulation. If you don't believe that, that's fine. That's okay. If you're like, no, he's going to rapture us out in the middle of the tribulation. You can believe that. That's fine. Doesn't change the gospel. Well, he's going to rapture us out after the tribulation. You can be wrong. I don't care. That doesn't change the gospel. That's not going to affect anything. I have friends in the ministry who are mid-trib or post-trib, and I'm still friends with them. We still get along because you know what? They still believe Jesus came, died for their sins, rose again, and is coming back. It's not what's most important isn't when he's coming back. The most important part is he's coming back. He's coming to receive his bride. I believe the Bible teaches before the rapture. You don't believe that? We can all be wrong on certain things, you know. Some of you are tech fans. That's wrong too, so I don't, I don't care about that. But the, fact, the truth is, the most important thing is he's coming back. He's coming to receive his bride. And he can return at any moment. He could come back this morning. How many of y'all would be okay with that? If he came back right now, I'd be fine with that. I'd be okay if he said, let's rapture us out. Let's get the, I'd be fine with that. You know why? Because this world's a mess. And the, the worse it gets, the more I'm like, maybe those mid-trib guys are right because it's getting pretty bad here. But I don't believe that. But so the world's just getting worse and worse and worse. So if Jesus said, I'm coming back now, great. That's perfect. But that shouldn't motive, that shouldn't get us to the point where we say, oh, Jesus, I'm just going to sit on this mountain and wait for you to return. No, the angel said, stop sitting around because he can come back at any moment and there's a work to do. There's a world that is lost and dying and headed to hell that we have to get the gospel to. So yeah, look for us coming, wait for us coming, be excited for us coming, but until he comes, get busy working. Get busy witnessing. Get busy serving God and getting the truth to the law. So they had to believe in the resurrection, risen Savior. Second thing they had to believe, they believed in each other. Look at verse 12. Then returned they unto Jerusalem, from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went into the upper room and abode with Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zealous and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren. So after Jesus sends to heaven, these followers of Jesus go back to Jerusalem and they go into an upper room to pray and wait on the promise of the Holy Spirit. A lot of theologians believe that the upper room they went to is actually the room that they had the Last Supper in. Now, there's 120 people in there, so that's a big banquet hall. I don't really know if it's the exact same room. Again, doesn't matter. Doesn't change the gospel. If they were in the room they had the Last Supper in or if they were in an upper room of some other dude's house, doesn't matter. Fact is, they go back, they find this upper room, 120 of them get together, and they pray, 
and they praise God, and they wait for God to send the, the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, it's more than just 11 apostles in this room. There are 120 followers, and there's a wide variety of people in this upper room. There are the apostles, the men, the 11 men who are still, still remaining, still alive. Judas now, he's dead. But the 11 men who walked with Jesus, who sat under his teaching, who experienced his power, who saw him do great works, who he entrusted to, the 11 closest men to Jesus on earth are in this room. But Jesus' mom is in this room. Jesus' brothers are in this room. The brothers that didn't believe he was the Messiah until he rose from the dead, they're in this room. There's also some ordinary I don't want to call them that, but just some, some regular followers of Jesus, just some men and women who met Jesus and fell in love with him and believed in him and started to serve him. They're up here in this room. So it is a wide variety of people in this room right now. But, you know, none of them were vying for authority. There was no division in this group. And it would have been easy for a division to arise in this group. You know, Jesus' family, they could have said, you know what? We're his brothers. We grew up with him. We know him better than anybody. Yeah, y'all spent three and a half years with him. We spent 30. His mom could have said, look, I gave birth to him. I am the, the virgin prophesied in Isaiah. I deserve some special authority. I deserve some special place in the new church. Peter, he could have been criticized because he's the one that denied Jesus three times when he needed him the most and that, you know, cursed and swore to prove he wasn't a follower. When Jesus was in his greatest need, Peter abandoned him and denied him. He could have been criticized. They could have said, why are you even here, Peter? You weren't there when Jesus needed you most. Why are you here now? Peter could have criticized John. John's the one who took Peter to the high priest's house, which started the whole war between Jesus and the religious elite. So Peter could have said, John, this is all your fault. You don't deserve to be here. John could have been like, I deserve to be here more than anybody because I'm the only one that was at the cross when he died. I was the one that he looked at and said, John, take care of my mom. He entrusted me with his mom. Surely he trusts me more than anybody else. There could have been that, but there was none of it. None of them were vying for authority, were trying to be in charge or trying to do one thing. There was no division. The Bible says they were all of one accord. That means they all had the same passion. They all had the same goal. They all had the same mission in mind. The phrase of one accord is found six times in the book of Acts. These believers had an incredible unity that bound them to each other. They were all dedicated to serving Jesus and building his kingdom. So they put aside their petty differences. They put aside their preferences. They put aside their egos and said, we're just going to follow Jesus and serve Jesus and build his kingdom. That's the kind of unity that we need in churches today. The kind that put aside our petty differences, our preferences, our egos to say, you know what? We're all here for one thing, to worship and serve Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. However God leads us, whatever God wants us to do, our main focus is building God's kingdom, not our kingdom. Warren Worsby said this, it's not enough for Christians to have faith in the Lord, they must have faith in one another also. Jesus gave the sole responsibility to these 120 believers to get the gospel to the entire world and none of them could do it alone. John couldn't do it, Peter couldn't do it, even the 11 apostles couldn't do it, they needed each other. They were going to suffer severe persecution in the coming days, and it wasn't time to ask who was the greatest among them. It was time to pray together, to stand together in the Lord as they waited and worshipped, preparing for what was ahead. Third thing that they had to believe in, they believed 
in prayer. Look at verse number 15 of chapter one. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about 120. Then I want you to skip down to verse number 24. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show together of these two that thou hast chosen, uh, that he may take part of this, of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. Prayer played a significant role in the story of the church in the book of Acts. They prayed about everything. Everything. They prayed for guidance before making decisions. They prayed for wisdom when they were going to make a decision. They prayed for everything, which we can criticize them. They prayed for everything, but you know what? They prayed for everything. Most of us pray for nothing. They prayed for everything. Prayer was a normal part of their daily ministry. Prayer was so important to them. Stephen prays to God while they're stoning him to death. The other day, uh, I was setting up the uh, slip and slide. Uh, we had a great time, but I was setting up the slip and slide, and I was walking down the hill uh, to do some, to, you know, fasten some things on the bottom, and I was walking in flip-flops. Do not walk in flip-flops down a hill when the grass is wet. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, I'm walking down, and one of my flip-flops broke. And when it broke, I went head over heels down the entire hill. I was not praying on my way down. I was saying stuff. What were you saying? None of your business. But it wasn't, oh, dear Jesus, thank you so much for this. It was some other things. So I can't imagine people are stoning me to death, me to think, you know what? I'm going to pray. I'm gonna... And he didn't just pray, oh, God. Pray. He prayed for them. He prayed for the people killing him. That's how second nature prayer was to him. You know, Peter and John, they prayed for the Samaritans. Saul, after his conversion to Paul, he prayed to God for direction. Peter prayed before raising Dorcas from the dead. Cornelius prayed that God would show him how to be saved. And God answered his prayer through Peter as Peter was praying. The believers in Mark's house, they prayed for Peter while he was in prison and God delivered him from prison and from death. The church at Antioch, they fasted and prayed before sending Paul and Barnabas out with the gospel. At a prayer meeting at Philippi, God opened the heart of Lydia and she accepted God as a savior. At that same place in Philippi, a jail, you know, Peter and, and uh, Paul prayed and the jail was shaken and a Philippian jailer accepted Christ as your savior because of prayer. Paul prayed for his friends before leaving them. He prayed for God's blessing in the middle of a storm. In every chapter of Acts, you find prayer and you see God doing great things when his people pray. Prayer is the thermometer and the thermostat of the local church. Our spiritual temperature goes up and down depending on how we pray. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, he said, Prayer is the shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. Prayer accomplishes great things for God, and lack of prayer makes a believer and makes a church powerless and meaningless. Here's the fourth thing they believe. We'll finish up real quick. Number four, they believed in God's leading. Verse 16 to 23, we're not going to read it for sake of time, but we kind of read the end of it. <clears throat> but Peter, they're, they're praying for a while, and Peter stands up, and he starts talking to them, and he, he quotes some scripture, and he starts leading them, and he goes, look, we got to replace Judas, you know, that guy Judas who betrayed Jesus and, you know, killed himself. We need to replace him. So they pray and they, they decide on two men they're going to have as, as the next apostle. And they choose Matthias. They cast lots, which is basically throwing dice. But they were, that's not how we decide things. You know, don't be like, all right, God, where should I go to work today? Don't do that. That's not how we do it anymore. But they were trusting God to lead them. They said, God, we've got these two men who walk with you on earth, who set under your teaching who witnessed the resurrection. They are qualified to be apostles. But we don't know which one, we want, which one you want. So God, we're going to trust you. 
and they trusted God to lead them to the right decision. Through the Word of God, through prayer and the Holy Spirit, this is what formed the ministry of the church in the book of Acts. And so again, Peter, he, he takes the lead, he begins to address a group of believers, and some people, not in the Bible, but today in history, they have criticized Peter for doing this. That takes guts to criticize something that's recorded in the Word of God. Say, oh, Peter shouldn't have done that. It's in the Bible for a purpose. You know, me and April were talking, and I mentioned, you know, in, in Psalms, David's prayer to, for God to kill his enemies. He's like, God, these people are bugging me. Just kill them. Wipe them off the face of the earth. Kill their children. Kill their dogs. Make them orphans. Just get rid of them. And April said, I'm not sure that was right. I'm like, it's in the Bible. You can't say it's in the Bible. It wasn't right. It's in the Bible. So, so, so what am I saying? You can pray for God to kill your enemies. No, I'm not saying that. But anyway, so people have criticized Peter for kind of taking charge and leading the thing. But I believe Peter was acting on the leading of the Spirit. After the resurrection, Jesus told Peter, not anyone else, to feed his sheep. Remember the story? They know that, the Savior, that Jesus is risen. They still, Peter's like, yeah, he, the tomb's empty. He's risen from the dead. I'm going fishing. Goes fishing. He looks over on the seashore and he sees this man cooking fish and he says cast a net over and Peter says I know who that is so he gets dressed jumps over swims over to Jesus the other apostles come over Jesus cooks them a meal they have a meal together and Jesus looks at Peter the other guys are right there but he looks at Peter and says Peter do you love me yeah I love you and feed my sheep he told Peter to feed his sheep every time the apostles are listed in scripture you know who's listed first Peter well, that's just because Peter wrote it. Peter didn't write Luke. I mean, didn't write Acts. Luke did. And if you're writing a book and you're listing people and you're in that list, you're probably going to list yourself first. But the Holy Spirit had him list Peter first. When the Spirit came at Pentecost, Peter was the spokesman God used for the gospel. So there's also debate about their decision to appoint Matthias as the 12th apostle because Paul was obviously the, the right choice, right? Because he was the one that took the gospel to the Gentiles and started the modern church and did all this work for God. He's the greatest New Testament uh, uh, Christian. So Paul was obviously the right choice. But was he? Paul didn't fit any of their criteria for an apostle. For an apostle, the, the qualifications are given in verse in Acts here, chapter 21 and 22, for a look at him. It says, wherefore of these men, which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one of them be ordained for witness uh, with us uh, of the resurrection. So he said, here's some qualification. He goes, look, they've been with us for the whole time. Paul wasn't. They were baptized by John the Baptist. Paul wasn't. He never traveled with the apostles while Jesus was on earth. Yeah, he saw the glorified Jesus at his conversion, but Jesus had already ascended to heaven. He wasn't a personal witness to the resurrection. He didn't spend any time with the resurrected Savior while he was on earth. So he, he didn't really have the qualifications of an apostle. Another argument I heard is, well, Matthias, he's never mentioned again in the Bible, so he must have been a wrong choice, right? Except for Peter and John... None of the apostles are mentioned in the book of Acts ever again. Most of them aren't mentioned in the rest of the Bible. After Acts, you ever hear about Matthew? No. But he was an apostle. So it's like, well, he wasn't mentioned, so he couldn't have been the right one. So Peter and the other believers, I believe they were in the will of God when they chose Matthias as, this, as the apostle. And I believe God gave them the endorsement of the choice because the Bible says he gave Matthias the same power he gave the rest of the apostles. He received the same spirit that he had given the others. So God needed 12 men to preach the, the day of Pentecost because he was preaching to the 12 tribes of Israel. So he needed 12 men to preach to the 12 tribes. And he also needed 12 men to sit on the throne and judge the, the nation, according to Luke chapter 22. And from Acts 2 to Acts 7, the entire ministry of the church is to the Jews. It's not until Paul is saved, Paul's converted in chapter 8, then he goes and gets some training for a few years and shows back up in chapter 10 that God goes to the Gentiles. 
And he uses Paul to go to the Gentiles. Paul was the disciple chosen to take the gospel to the Gentiles, but these believers, they prayed before they chose a new apostle. They wanted to select the man that God wanted, so they prayed and they went to the word of God and they trusted in the leading of God. And they set an example for us today. We need God's guidance in every area of our life. Pick an apostle for Jesus, big deal. Can we agree with that? That's a big decision. They needed God's guidance for that. You know what? We need God's guidance for how to, how to raise our family, how to treat our spouses, how to work in this wicked, fallen world in a way that honors and glorifies Jesus. A way to, we need God's guidance how to reach our neighbors and preach the gospel and how to run our finances and how to, how to do everything in our, in our lives. We need God's guidance for everything. See, that's what made the church different. They prayed for everything and they went to God's guidance for everything. We usually don't pray for anything we trust our own wisdom and own guidance until we mess up and then we need God. God, I messed up, now I need you. They said, God, I don't want to mess up, so I need you. See the difference there? They believed in God's leading. We say we do, but we don't live like we do. You know, these 120 people, they were used by God, the Bible says, to turn the world upside down for Jesus. There was nothing special about them. There was no incredible power among them. There was, you know, they were, humanly speaking, they were just a bunch of ordinary, broken people. Nothing unique about them, except what they believed. They believed in the risen Savior, and they didn't just believe that he rose, but they believed that his resurrection changed them. They believed in each other. They believed in prayer and they believed in the leading of the Holy Spirit of God. And because of that, God gave them the Holy Spirit and that's what made them the most powerful group on earth. Again, these men, these 120 people, 120 men and women went from 120 to several million and 30, got the gospel to the whole world with no internet, no radio, no TV, no complete word of God. They were living the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. They had none of the stuff that we had. But they had the Holy Spirit, which is, we have the Holy Spirit too, but they trusted in it. They used the power God gave them. We have the same spirit, we have the same power, and we can do the same things if we believe as they did.